If you remain standing, I'm going to read our word for us today. Uh, my name is Hunter, um, and after I'm done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord, and if you all would respond with, speak, Lord, your servant's here. So Romans 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not, have, do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Behold, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated, and I'm going to pray. God, you are so good, and I think we can see that just by looking at Taproot. Um, but I ask that you challenge us, uh, challenge us as members, as volunteers, as just servants of you. Challenge us in, in our um, just spreading your gospel, God. Um, I ask you to be with Mike, give him the words uh, to speak, let it be your words, not his, and give us ears to hear and open hearts to accept what you have for us. Um, God, I just pray for, pray for this service. Speak to us. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, brother. Morning, family. How are we? Woo! Enjoying these uh, cold, sunny days? I'll take the zero in sun over the fog any day. It's bright, it's beautiful. Anyways, let's get to work. So this is week three of our membership series. Uh, and I just, just a brief re rehashing of where we've been. We started out by just uh, kind of laying some groundwork as to why uh, we do local church membership and, and really getting at just just some of the practicalities of it. In, in, in through local church membership, we're, we're communicating this reality that we are a people who are connected to one another, that we are a people who 
need one another. Um, and that also, in and through membership, we are, we are trying to like visibly, tangibly communicate something that was absolutely implied and understood uh, in the New Testament church context. Uh, but we are now 2,000 plus years removed from when the church was birthed. And so there's more explanation that has to go into things. And so membership helps us along in that process to just communicate what does it mean to be a committed follower of Jesus? And what does it mean as a follower of Jesus to be committed to a local church? And just so you know, uh, you cannot be a committed follower of Jesus and not be committed to a local church. They go hand in hand. They're absolutely essential. And so then last week, uh, we took our time and worked through our first core value, the authority of Scripture. Tons of information in that sermon. Uh, this week, we're moving on here to the centrality of the gospel, which is our second core value. And so uh, we're just going to jump in this morning. We have three points. Number one is, uh, well, they're questions. What is the gospel? Number two, we're going to talk about how we respond to the gospel. And then number three, what are the implications of the gospel? So that's our outline for this morning. Um, So number one, what is the gospel? And remember, Romans 12 is our our jumping off point. Essentially, we're not necessarily uh, at this point going to be working, uh, you know, verse by verse through Romans chapter 12. But what, what we do have in Romans 12 is a picture of the type of community that is created in light of the gospel. And so that's why we're reading it every week, because we want to see week after week, what is this community, what does this church look like? How do we live? How do we interact? So on and so forth. Romans 12 gives us that picture. But I do want to start here in verse 1 and 2 again of Romans 12, which Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So Romans 12 is a transition point in Romans, and Paul assumes that if we've made it to Romans 12, we've also probably read Romans 1 through 11. And so Romans 1 through 11 lays out for us what, what the gospel is. And that's where Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of, in light of the mercies of, the, of, of God, that is, in light of the, the, the gospel that I have proclaimed to then live this particular way. And so we're then answering this question based off of this this morning, what is the gospel? So I, I always love to do this when we talk about this. And just pause for a moment, and I just want you to think to yourself, what is the gospel? Like how, how would you answer that question? And it's, it's an interesting question. That I, I think it tends to, to provoke a lot in us or, or create question or, and either, or, or it creates certainty or maybe even it, it creates uncertainty. Because when it comes to the question of, of what, in, what is the gospel, I've, I find that it tends to be a question that sort of freezes us up a bit. Like, we, get, we, we hear the question, like, I think I should know how to answer this, but I'm not so sure I know how to answer this. Right? There, there's a part of us when we hear what is the gospel that, that we know, like, oh, I should, like, I should know this. And then there's a part of us that's like, maybe I don't know this. Maybe there's more that I need to understand. And, and, and certainly, this is one of those questions that we, we know, like as followers of Jesus, right? We think if there's any question that we should get right, like any, any test that we should pass, like this is it, right? 
But I also, I think that it's more complicated to answer than we might think. Right, so if you're, if you're here this morning, you're like, I don't, I don't quite know how to answer this question. Like maybe you've been a church goer for your whole life and maybe you're like, man, that's a good question. Maybe you're, you're brand new as a follower of Jesus or you're just kind of exploring Christianity and you're not sure how to answer the question. That's fine. And, and I, want, I want to set us at ease to know that it, it really is quite a complicated and complex question to answer. Because as with many other things, the word gospel itself has in many ways for followers of Jesus, for the church today, it has become familiar and watered down and convoluted or um, truncated might be another word there as well. Right? And so in essence, what, the, the way that we, we tend to want to answer the question is, is kind of that the gospel is this catch-all phrase for what Christians believe. So, so most often when we hear what is the gospel, we'll say, well, it, it refers to the fact that God loves us or that Jesus died on the cross for my sins and kind of end right there. And that's true. That, that is indeed part of the gospel. These are true components of the gospel, but these things in and of themselves are not the full gospel. So even, even to, to, to get to the heart of, well, Jesus, the gospel is Jesus died on the cross for my sins, that is, that's true. That is a part of it, but that's not a complete picture of what we see in the scriptures. But yet, that's, that's kind of what we've narrowed in on, is this one particular facet of the gospel. And so then we summarize all things by just, well, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. That's the good news. That's where we go from. But... As with what it means to be a part of a local church, uh, what we find is that the gospel needs a lot of explaining. It needs teaching. And we'll see this uh, through several scriptures this morning. But we shouldn't be surprised at that because what was Jesus' commission to his disciples? It was to go and make disciples. And what is it to make disciples? Well, it's to teach people about Jesus, who he is and what he has done. And so the assumption that Jesus has for us as disciples is that we're going to have to do some teaching and some learning around these things. And so we need to understand that, yes, there is some complexity to the gospel. In other words, I don't think that the gospel is supposed to be as simply understood as we often want to make it. It needs explained and learned. Uh, we, we, how many of you like succinct definitions for things, right? Most of us. Like, can you, just, can you just give me the definition and then we can move on our way? It would be nice if it was like that, right? Uh, but it's not. And so what then is the gospel? Well, there's at least two components that I want to get at this morning. The first is this, is that the gospel is good news. First and foremost, the gospel is simply good news, this is, this is the most general sense, the most general understanding. The, the word gospel itself simply means good news. It comes from the Greek word euangelion, uh, and, and it's, a, it's a compound word in which the word you means good, and angelion means announcement. So literally, the word together means good announcement, and this is important for us to understand because the word news in and of itself today bears minimal significance, right? Most of us, when we hear the word news, we're like, I'm going to ignore that, right? We, because we become so inundated with news that, that 
it, either, it, it usually just bears no significance, or it just is another thing that happens. Or just, I'm just going to kind of browse through it on my phone and, you know, news, whatever. I see it a billion times every single day. But that's not how the word was originally used. It would have been reserved for very uh, specific times. It was not a common word, and it was treated with significance. And so it might be helpful for us as well to adopt the terminology of a good announcement or proclamation. So when we talk about the gospel and what the gospel is, we begin with that foundation, that it is a good announcement. It's a good proclamation of something that's happened, okay? So then what is this announcement about? Well, this is the second component to the gospel, and it's that the gospel is a royal announcement about a royal rescue. It is a royal announcement about a royal rescue, In other words, when we are announcing or proclaiming the gospel, we're proclaiming a reality about a king and a kingdom. Uh, To be honest, there are few words, more ideas, more realities that are more political than the gospel. Jesus entered into human history to establish a new kingdom reality. And so we're talking about the gospel, we're talking about this First and foremost. Now, here's the challenge for us. This good announcement is most significant when we understand it in its historical context and thus capture its full meaning, right? And this is, again, where discipleship is necessary for us. We have to be able to do the work to go, like we talked about last week, to to read Scripture in light of its context, to go back and see what was being talked about throughout the story of Scripture to then capture the fuller meaning of what the gospel actually is. Is And this is important because otherwise, what we'll wind up doing is truncating our understanding and then viewing the gospel as simply being about salvation. And so I want us to understand that the gospel, the good announcement, this good proclamation is not just about getting saved. That's a good component, but it's far more robust than that. Okay? Um, Scott McKnight puts it like this, and I don't have this quote up here, but he wrote a book called The King Jesus Gospel, uh, which I think is a fantastic book. Uh, If you want another book that talks a little bit about this, uh, N.T. Wright wrote a book called Jesus the King. So The King Jesus Gospel and Jesus the King, two helpful books. Uh, But McKnight, he kind of summarizes the problem in this way. He says, quote, I believe that the word gospel has been hijacked by what we believe about personal salvation. And the gospel itself has been reshaped to facilitate making decisions. The result of this hijacking is that the word gospel no longer means in our world what it originally meant to either Jesus or the apostles. So part of what we're trying to ask then is, well, what did it mean to Jesus and the apostles? And the way for us to best understand what Jesus and Paul had in mind is to, well, see what Jesus and Paul had in mind or what they said. So in particular, when we talk about Jesus... Because we've been working through the Gospel of Matthew. When Jesus entered the scene, what did Jesus, what was he doing? When his ministry began, what was, what was he doing? Come on. Gospel of Matthew. Discipling, but he was, he was, he was proclaiming. What was he proclaiming? Yes. The Gospel of the Kingdom of God. So he had this very specific 
particular message about something that was taking place. And so Jesus enters the scene proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God. That's, that's his understanding of what the good news is. It's this good announcement about the kingdom of God, and then he would go on and live his life, and, and that would be revealed as to what it was. But Paul gives us some definitions as to what the gospel is. And we'll look at a couple of them this morning. And what we'll see is that Paul doesn't even define uh, the gospel in a succinct way. Depending on his audience, uh, depending on his particular situation, uh, he uses differing definitions that collectively communicate to us what the gospel is. So first one, though, is Romans 1. Turn to Romans 1 really quick. Romans 1. So for any of us who have been part of a church for any length of time, we've, we've most likely heard Romans 1, something from Romans 1. I'd also be willing to bet that when it comes to the gospel uh, and we think of Romans 1, we tend to jump to verses 16 and 17. Uh, because, because it's there at verses 16 and 17 that we kind of have this picture of, well, just like this. Uh, when the Protestant Reformation was kicked off, it was, it was Luther's reading and understanding of Romans 1, 16 and 17 uh, that kind of like pushed him to see, begin seeing things a little bit more clearly than what the Roman Catholic Church was. And so we tend to jump here to Romans 1, 16 and 17, where Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it... The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Beautiful, beautiful couple of verses. Here's the thing. Paul does not give us a definition of the gospel in those verses. He, he tells us that in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. He tells us that the, that the gospel is powerful, uh, but in these two verses, he's not defining for us specifically what the gospel is. What Paul has in mind when he's talking about the power of the gospel is Romans 1, 1, where he begins. All right, so jump to verse 1 there. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Okay, now, now Paul begins to define what the gospel is, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's Paul's definition of the gospel. Now, we'll get to that here in just a little bit. But for now, what I want us to see is this, is when, when it comes to understanding the gospel as a royal announcement about a royal rescue, we need to know that Paul's definition comes from the Old Testament. It comes from the scriptures. And when Paul references scriptures, he's thinking of his Bible, which was what we know as the Old Testament. Right? And we see this clearly because he says in verse 2 that it's, it's the gospel that was, that was set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures. In other words... The context for us, what Paul teaches us, is that if we want to understand what the gospel is, we need to read the Hebrew Bible. 
Um, yeah, I think it was McKnight in, in the King Jesus Gospel. He, he says that often in, in the church today, our definitions of the gospel do not require the Old Testament. And if our definition of the good announcement about Jesus doesn't require the Old Testament, then we've probably missed the good announcement because it's, it's the whole of what Scripture is, is, is leading up to, right? And so we have to then get a, a grasp of, of what this story is, of what is being communicated. Okay? Well, so we see Paul referencing the Old Testament promised beforehand. And in short, what we find in the Old Testament, of course, is a story about how God chose a people through whom the nations would be blessed. So that takes us all the way back to Genesis 12, in essence. That nation would be Israel. What you have coming out of this then is kings who would come forth, but they would never satisfy or fulfill what God's people needed. And so part of what the story then that we see is this this constant hope and this constant anticipation of a better king to come. Because all along the way, kings would come and they would fall short. Here's how Tim Mackey, Gospel Project, summarizes it. He says this. um, As the story of the Old Testament develops, it becomes clear that the kings who rule over the people of Israel are as corrupt and violent as the rulers of any other nation. This is a problem because God had promised Israel's ancestors that through this nation, all other nations would find God's blessing. And so in the Old Testament book of Isaiah, the prophet announces good news that Israel's divine king, the creator of all things, was going to come in person and become the new king of Israel. But first, Israel's corrupt kings had to be done away with, and this happened in the exile of the Israelites to Babylon. You can see that story in First and Second Kings. While it may look like the distorted kings of Israel or Babylon are running the world, in reality, there is good news. Israel's God is the true king of the world, and he's coming one day. So there's numerous references in Isaiah. I'm, I'm just going to go to one. If, but you'll notice these, especially starting in about Isaiah chapter 40. Okay? So if you just read through Isaiah chapter 40, you have this picture of, of what we know as the suffering, ser- suffering servant. Uh, some scholars would call Isaiah the fifth gospel because it has so much, uh, so many references to good news. And so one example that we see is just this in Isaiah chapter 40. Uh, listen to verses 9 through 11. It says, go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. It's the gospel, it's this good announcement. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold, your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom. And his uh, idea is like uh, in his cloak is what the idea is of the word, and gently lead those that are with young. So you have this, this beginning of this proclamation. So when, when Paul talks about this story that was told beforehand, this is what he's referencing. Right? 
Isaiah 40, numerous others as well. If you're you know, taking notes, Isaiah 41, verse 27, Isaiah 52, verse 7, Isaiah 60, verse 6, and then in numerous other places throughout the Old Testament story. There's this constant referencing of good news that one day a particular king is going to come who's going to rule in a different way than what all of the other kings did. A, a king who's going to come and who's not going to fail. A king who's going to come and who's kingdom and throne would be set up and established forever. Second uh, Samuel 7 uh, is another key reference point for us. That's the, the promise to uh, David, right? Davidic, uh, God's promise to David that there would always be a king sitting on his throne. That person is Jesus. Jesus is that king. Okay? So in, in, in getting a clear picture then of what the gospel is, we have to know the Old Testament story and how it's pointing us to Jesus. And then what helps us here is to know that when we arrive at the New Testament, right, so when we arrive at the Gospel of Matthew, what we're supposed to feel, having, having worked through the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, we're supposed to feel like the story's unfinished, because it is. Right? If, if you conclude with Malachi, you're left open-ended. You're left wondering, like, what's the resolution? The story's not complete, and it's not complete, and so the New Testament hooks purposefully into the Old Testament story. And then what we see is that it finds its resolution in Jesus. That's, that's the good announcement, that, the, that the, the Old Testament problem of Israel and of humanity finds its ultimate resolution, its culmination point in the person and work of Jesus, which we see spelled out in the four Gospels, which are uh, narrative pieces of literature, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then it has worked itself out throughout the rest of the New Testament. Okay. So the New Testament gives us the resolution that we find in the person and work of Jesus. So the gospel then is the story of a king and the story of a savior. Right? When the Old Testament proclaims the gospel, it's anticipating a unique king who will provide salvation to all nations. That's what it's looking towards. So then what we see when Paul is proclaiming the gospel, in particular in Rome, what he wants us to understand is this, is that the gospel was and is the true announcement of peace in a ocean of false peace. So in Romans in particular, what you have to picture is this, is that you have the Roman Empire is, is in charge. And the people of Israel are anticipating their Messiah, their king. And they're anticipating that he's going to come and he's going to defeat Rome and he's going to establish a new order of peace. And Jesus comes and he does that. But he does it in an entirely different way than anyone expects. He does so peacefully. He, he does so by ultimately finding himself crucified on a Roman cross. And then he does so by establishing there's just this ragtag group of people. But it's, it's unique and it's diverse, which we'll get to in a little bit. But what you ultimately see is that what's being proclaimed, what's being announced is a true message of peace in the midst of false peace because Rome's message was a message of peace. And we've all heard of the Pax Romana, right? It was this idea that, that Rome, Roman rule was going to bring peace to the world. 
How did they do it? Through force. Through force, through slavery, through heavy-handed taxes, through oppression, uh, through basically doing away with the weak and continually lifting up the strong. Everything opposite of the way of Jesus. Anything but peace. And so Jesus enters into human history and he absolutely reverses it and flips it upside down. And so you have in the, the proclamation of this good news, you have a true proclamation of peace. That's truly in many ways, it's just hard to grasp. It, it, truly in many ways, it just it makes no sense. It's opposite of what we're taught to think when it comes to understanding how peace comes into this world. And so I think part of the question for us to ask when it comes to understanding the gospel is, is where are we looking for peace? Because in, in Scripture, Rome and, and Babylon, they're, con, they're congruent with these representations of false ideas of peace. And so where are, we, where are we pursuing peace? Are we pursuing it in the midst of Rome, Babylon, America? Or are we pursuing it through the person and work of Jesus and his kingdom and the peace that he gives? Because the peace that he gives and brings will, will always be far and above whatever political power this earth could possibly give us. That's, that's the good proclamation of King Jesus. Other areas where you'll see this reality is uh, if you want to just see how this works itself out, read the sermons in the book of Acts. Uh, so if you, if you would just read, um, in particular, if you'd read Acts chapter 2, Peter's sermon at, on the day of Pentecost, and if you'd read Acts chapter 7, which is Stephen's sermon after uh, the deacons are established and whatnot there in Jerusalem, you'll see how this works. You'll see this picture of a story that finds its culmination in the person and work of Jesus. And then you'll find a people who are, who are realigning their lives underneath of this new reality. Okay, so let's, let's summarize it. This way, I want us to, to summarize then what are the essential components to the gospel. Okay? And we see this in Romans 1, 2 through 4. We also see it in 1 Corinthians 15, which I actually want to jump to really quick. And then also in Galatians chapter 1, verse 4. So if you want to know where does Paul define the gospel for us, primarily these three texts. Okay? And when Paul, so, uh, let's see. In 1 and 2 Timothy, and in other areas as well, Paul talks about guarding sound doctrine. When Paul talks about guarding sound doctrine, this is what he's talking about. He's, he's not talking about guarding a systematic theology. He's not, he's, not, he's not concerned primarily about justification and sanctification and glorification, as good as those things are. When Paul talks about guarding sound doctrine, he's talking about the essential components of this proclamation. And so when we look at how Paul talks about the gospel in Romans 1, and then couple it with 1 Corinthians 15 and Galatians 1, this is what we get. We get this summary of the gospel. Now, really quick, just 1 Corinthians 15, listen to what this says. 
Now I remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Okay, so With this in mind and with Romans 1 in mind, we have these essential components. And it's that Jesus the King preexisted with the Father. That is, Jesus is the eternal Son of God. Second, he took on human flesh, thus fulfilling God's promises to David. Third, he died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Notice that's a, a repeated phrase in 1 Corinthians 15, that the work that Jesus did is in accordance with the scriptures. And again, what are the scriptures that they have in mind? It's the Old Testament, okay? So the, Paul always has in mind that this is the Old Testament story. This is what it's pointing us to. Uh, fourth, he was buried. Fifth, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, Uh, Sixth, he appeared to many, hundreds, more than 500 at one time, Paul tells us. Uh, Seventh, he is seated at the right hand of God as Lord and will come, number eight, again as judge. Now, now here's, here's the, this is where we usually stop short, we, we, we tend to stop short at Jesus died on the cross for our sins. If we don't, if we don't finish with the news that Jesus has been enthroned as Lord and King, we've missed the complete good announcement. Because otherwise, he's just crucified. But he rose and he defeated Satan and sin and death and hell and all that was falsely peaceful to the world. And he's ascended, he's ruling and reigning now as Lord and King. That has to be proclaimed. And and the reason why that often gets stopped short is because of an overemphasis on what I just read in 1 Corinthians 15. And and here's why it gets overemphasized is because we stop at verse 11. But if you go on and read the rest of 1 Corinthians 15, you'll see Paul expounds upon this reality of Jesus' kingship and Jesus' resurrected reality to the point that, listen to this, this is what he says in verse 24, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. So Jesus is king and his job right now, this is current as king, is he's going to destroy every rule, every authority and power for he must reign, that means he is reigning, He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. This is what Jesus is doing now. It's more exciting than that. 
I see you want to. You want to. (laughs) And so it culminates in this reality. Guys, it should be of utmost comfort to us that the God of the universe entered into human history, became flesh, did what we couldn't, died our death, rose and is ruling and reigning as Lord and King. That changes everything, right? The question then is what? If that is the gospel, uh, then how do we respond to the gospel and what does it mean for us? So let's move on. How do we respond to the gospel? Um, Jump with me to Acts chapter 16. And this is actually really helpful for our morning uh, with getting to baptize someone. There are, uh, there's numerous instances in the book of Acts where you, see the, where you see this formula, so to speak. I hate calling it a formula. Um, where you see this paradigm kind of work itself out. That the, the key responses that we have to the gospel, that we ought to have to the gospel, is number one, repentance. Number two, baptism. Uh, number three, believing. And, and there's not an order to that necessarily. I'm not trying to like say this, it's this, this, and this. They go together. They, they all kind of go hand in hand. So you, you kind of see one of them and you see the whole series always together. So look there at verse, uh, chapter 16, verse 25. I'm gonna read through verse 34. So Paul and Silas are in Philippi and they're in prison. That's the context. So about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Doesn't doesn't Roman rule sound peaceful? But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your households. Now listen, and they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. I just want to highlight there that this isn't like, this wasn't some, this wasn't a succinct telling of the story of Jesus. Like the jailer asks a question, how, how do I, how do I get saved? How, how do I respond to what I'm seeing and experiencing? And then Paul and Silas take the time to sit down with the jailer and his family. And I am certain that they explain the whole entire Old Testament story. Like, I'm certain that you could transport Acts chapter 2 or Acts chapter 7 into this and and see the Old Testament story culminating in Jesus. And they want to know, how do we respond to this? And then it goes on here. Um, Let's see, where was that? Verse 31. They, They said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all of his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. 
So you have this just beautiful picture of, of what takes place as people come under the, the good rule of King Jesus, right? But what we want to just highlight here is just this simple response of first repentance. Um, you see this more specifically in Acts chapter two. Right? Uh, Peter preaches and the crowd's here and they say, what, what do I do? And Peter says, repent and believe in, in Jesus. And so repentance is simply, it's this, it's, it just simply means to turn. Right? Most of us are familiar with this, but it means to stop living as though you are king and start living with Jesus as your king. Now that's important because that takes us all the way back to Genesis 3, where the, where the sin problem is ultimately that humans try to take the place of God. And instead of living under God's good reign and rule, just like we read this morning in our catechism, humans try to take it over by believing lies and so on and so forth. And so repentance is to not do that anymore. Repentance is to stop thinking that you're in charge of your life. It's a complete 180. In fact, Jesus' vision of a flourishing life is often 180 degrees apart from the moral norms of our day. It's a turn in another direction. It's, it's no longer going my kingdom way, and it's following Jesus' kingdom way. Second, be baptized. And, and, and belief and baptism, again, they go hand in hand, so don't get, don't get caught up in my order here, okay? Uh, be baptized. What we see in baptism is this. Baptism is the signifier of our allegiance to Jesus. Okay? I'm gonna say that again. Baptism is the signifier of our allegiance to Jesus. We, we have to begin to capture this again. Um, John Mark Comer puts it like this. He says, quote, followers of Jesus need to come back to the reality that baptism is their primary pledge of allegiance. So when, we, when we're baptized or when we're baptizing others, we have to understand that what's being declared, what's being witnessed is a pledge of allegiance to a new rule, to a new king. All right, so when we, we, we talked with Avery about it this week. She came into our office, had a conversation, and explained this reality, that what you're communicating you're, is you're communicating something to the church. That's us. She's communicating to us that she wants to follow Jesus, that her, her life is given to Jesus, that she wants to live obediently to Jesus. And guess what our role is? It's to be with her in that. Right? Uh, Baptism is, is not this first personal public proclamation of your faith. That's not what it is. It is a, a visible, tangible expression of our commitment to King Jesus. <clears throat> and to be baptized in Roman culture was to put a target on your back. Like it, it was to die. And so part of our responsibility as a church is to just kind of recover this. Now, it's, it's probably not going to put targets on our back. But I think what we do need to, to learn to recover as a local church is, is understanding this commitment that is expressed through baptism. 
So that when we see Avery go in the water today and come out of the water, it's not just her. This isn't just her experience. This is the church. And we're witnessing and we're saying, yes, we are committed to you as a follower of Jesus. Like, and we want to we wanna walk with you. We want to see you, by God's grace, finish the race well in 70 years from now when a bunch of us are going to be dead. But this, this is the faithful witness that we're supposed to be passing on. Like, we have to recover the seriousness of this. And then third, believe. Uh, when we talk about belief in Scripture, this is a hard one as well. Um, the idea of belief is far more than an intellectual or mental assent. It's far more than just like, oh, yeah, I believe. Like, cool. I believe Jesus lived. Like, uh, the idea, so the word, the word believe most often in the New Testament is the same word uh, that is used for faith. Uh, it's the Greek word pistis, pistis, something like that. It's Greek. Um, P-I-S-T-I-S. How about that? You figure out how to say it. Um, and as with many Greek words, it has a broad range of meaning. And so part of what you have to do is understand context and understand what, what's wanting to be communicated. Uh, one of the ways that this word can be translated is the idea of allegiance. So it's not just a mental, oh, I believe. It's, it's a, I believe in such a way that my life now displays my belief. It's a belief that says, I I'm living a new reality. My, my commitment, my allegiance, my dedication, my devotion is to Jesus. Um, Paul gets at, at it when he, in Ephesians chapter 2. Um, oh, it's not coming to my mind, so I'm going to read it. In Ephesians 2, we famous, right? For by the grace, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Uh, could also be through allegiance. It's that word, that faith word. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Okay? So here's, here's, where, here's where belief gets challenging. Um, and this question was asked last week, right? We've become so afraid of legalism that we don't know where to place good works as a response, right? And, and here's, here's where I've kind of personally just seen this work out. Um, it, it either looks like this. It looks like there is no intention to do good at all. Like, uh, kind of the excuse is like, because of grace, so because of grace, well, I, you know, I don't have to do anything. <laughs> or, or you have the opposite extreme of to a fear of doing good lest you become legalistic. Right? So I don't want to do too much good because then I might be a legalist. Right? But again, let's understand that that's not what, that's not what legalism is. 
No, did, any, did anyone notice what Paul said there in 1 Corinthians 15 after he gets done proclaiming what the gospel is? What does he say about his own works? Anyone? He says, I worked harder than any of them. Right? Paul's not afraid of work. Right? And so we have, to, we have to be clear that when we're communicating the, the good news, this good proclamation, we're proclaiming the finished work of Jesus. But then there's a proper response to that finished work. And that response is ultimately allegiance. Now, allegiance plays itself out in numerous ways. So let's talk about that now. Allegiance, uh, and number three, what are the implications of the gospel? What are the implications of the gospel? And let's, let's, I just want to start with this. If you, if you work through the New Testament, what you'll see over and over and over again through the words of Paul, Peter, so on and so forth, is this desire to finish well. A desire to stay the course. Uh, the whole entire book of Revelation is intended to be an encouragement to the church to persevere through persecution. Right? And, and so here's, here's, here's the picture that we see, that we have to understand, and this is why membership is important for us. In order for us to stay committed to Jesus as followers of Jesus, we need each other. You will not remain a faithful follower of Jesus by yourself. I guarantee it. Like, start isolating yourself. Um, don't do this. So I'm just saying, start isolating yourself and see what happens. It will not go well. You will not draw nearer to God on your own. Right? And so allegiance to Jesus is a reality for us as we remain committed to a local community of followers of Jesus. Again, that's our responsibility to one another. So that, yeah, that when a brother or sister goes astray, part of our role, our responsibility is to call them back. And, hey, brother, sister, you're wandering from Jesus. Come back. And we... Uh, is it Hebrews? We spur one another on to love and good deeds. Notice, love and good deeds. Okay. So then, what else? What are the implications of the gospel? Okay. Uh, again, we don't want to get confused here. Uh, what we often communicate as the gospel are actually implications of the gospel. Okay. So maybe that wasn't as clear as it should have been. Often, when we try to say what the gospel is, we're actually communicating what the implications are. Does that make better sense? So it might be like, um, we'll, just, we'll, we'll just use the example of like restoration in marriage. My, my marriage is restored, and that's the gospel. No, that's an implication, a potential implication of the gospel. Right? Or, or take it down like any list of good things our tendency is to say, well, that's the gospel. That's the good news working in my life. Well, it's an implication of the good news. And it's not a guarantee either. Because there's a response that's required on our part. 
right? It's not magic. It doesn't just like, poof, it happens. All things are just good and better, right? Like read the New Testament. As people become followers of Jesus, things often get a whole lot worse, okay? So the implications then are, well, let's do this. The gospel can only be the announcement of the work of Jesus. So the gospel is, it stands on its own as what we just looked at, those eight points. That's it. It is concluded in that. Then there are realities that flow out of that, and those are the implications of the gospel. So the gospel itself can only be the announcement of the work of Jesus. And then where we see implications very clearly, just as an example for us, are Romans 12 through 16. Romans, Romans 12 is a list of the implications of the gospel. Paul, Paul is saying, in light of who you are now in Christ, this is what the community looks like. And, and he, begins, he begins by pointing to humility. Uh, he says, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. Just so you know, that was an unheard of statement in Roman world. Because the whole, the whole goal of a Roman citizen was to think higher of yourself and to, and to get yourself up higher on the social ladder. And what Paul does here in Romans 12 is he just levels everything. He just levels everything. And, and just completely redefines the way that the community looks. And so what you end up with is, as an implication of the gospel, is a humble, diverse, and morally distinct people. It's the church. Um, Dr. Larry Hurtado wrote a book. Uh, he was a historian of early Christianity, and he wrote a book called Destroyer of the Gods, and in it, his thesis was that it wasn't the church's relevance or relatability to the culture, but its difference and distinctness that made it compelling to so many. I think it's wonderful because so often we work really hard to be like, how can I make myself more relevant? How can we be more relevant to the world around us? We're not supposed to be relevant. We're supposed to be distinct. So what, what does that look like? This is, this is what Hurtado points out in his book. He points out these five distinctives of the early church. And so number one, what we see is that, uh, so think the birth of the church happens, and it was this explosive movement. And this is what distinguished them from the Greco-Roman culture around them. So number one, the church was multiracial and multi-ethnic with a high value for diversity, equity, and inclusion. That didn't exist in the Roman Empire. So this is unique. Number two, the church was spread across socioeconomic lines as well, and there was a high value for caring for the poor. Those with extra were expected to share with those with less. Also completely unheard of. Number three, it was staunch in its active resistance to infanticide and abortion, which was prevalent in the Roman world. Number four, it was resolute in its vision of marriage and sexuality as between one man and one woman for life. And finally, it was nonviolent both on a personal level and a political level. So here, here's how John Mark Comer summarizes this. I, just, I love this, and just let it do to you whatever. 
Quote, if you plot those five features onto the map of modern American politics, the first two sound like liberal positions as they're dealing with race and class. The second two sound like conservative positions as the last one doesn't jive with either. No political party or intellectual ideology outside the church of Jesus that I'm aware of holds all five together. Yet all five positions are basic, historic Christian orthodoxy. Nothing in the, fi- in the five is fringe or off-center for a disciple of Jesus. And, and we see these from beginning to end right here in Romans 12. Right? And so these are implications of the gospel. Another, another place that we might find implications would be... Um, I'll leave that up there for you. For example, it would be the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount and, and, and the whole of the Sermon on the Mount as a whole. Uh, but uh, N.T. Wright, he talks about this and he, and he talks about it like this saying um, that instead of the Beatitudes being just an ethical to-do list, the Beatitudes are meant to model what God's kingdom actually looks like. They represent the corporate moral ethic of God's kingdom, showing what a world looks like when God becomes king and showing how God's kingdom spreads throughout the world. And so as followers of Jesus, it's the reality that we're to embody. That's why we spent forever in the Sermon on the Mount. Because it's not just like an old story. It is the reality for us as followers of Jesus. We embody this and it's It's upside down. From the kingdom of this world, it looks entirely distinct. And so in implications of the gospel are, are these things. We want to maintain these realities. So here's, here's what we'll conclude. The gospel itself can never be modified, but it can be clarified. And it must uniquely inform every generation. And so part of the question that we have to ask ourselves and is today... What does it look like for Jesus to be king? What is the reality of his, his lordship and his rule and reign in our world? Because Jesus is the eternal son who entered human history, died, was buried, rose from the grave, appeared to hundreds, ascended to his throne. He will return to judge. The question is, will we bow before this king? Will we obey this king? Will we live our lives for this king? because this is what the good announcement calls us to. Amen? Father, we just thank you for your good news this morning. Um, And I pray that, yeah, even as we work through the tensions right now of of what the gospel is, um, may we all uh, act and think with humility. And, And even at that Help us to, to continue to work this out together um, and to continue to, I don't know, just explore and be curious with Scripture and, and try to, and, and to, to know and to understand this story. And so I pray that you would give us the grace to be able to, uh, to study well, to disciple well, and in all that we do to proclaim the good, finished work of Jesus and just the reality that he is enthroned and we live our lives underneath of 
of his rule, his reign, his authority, uh, and help us to do so humbly with one another. And so just give us grace in this. We very much uh, need your grace in this. And uh, so we just thank you uh, for your word. Thank you, Jesus, for your work. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.